Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of Jude. When we uh, look at the book, we just ask which verse are we going to be in? Excuse me. Today it's verse 3 and just a little bit of 4. Verse 3 and a little bit of 4 of this small epistle to Jude, which is from Jude, but it is so important for us in the church life today. So before I read the word, and since it's only one verse, well, yeah, no, you better stand up if you can. How about that? It is God's word. (laughs) So let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, you have given us your truth. Uh, We pray that we are wise with its use and application, that we are diligent with its study. So today we ask that you would open our eyes to this, that we would see and know and believe and live in a way that reflects the truth of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered for the saints. And then the first portion of four. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now you'll notice from the first word. He does not address pastors. He does not address elders. He addresses the beloved. And the beloved would be everybody who sits in the pews of the church. Now, they didn't have pews then, but that's what we have today. So everybody who is here today is beloved. And I want you to understand that that means Jude wants each of you to be a good theologian. And you go, oh, there he goes again. I I, I didn't want to, you know, I got other things in life. Why do I have to be a theologian as well? Because you're a believer. So that makes you a theologian. When somebody asks you, what is it that that you believe, they want to know more than John 3.16. That's the place to start. It is Christ and Christ alone. Well, how does that play out in your life? Well, how do you deal with the other passages? Now you're into theology, and it's, it's very simple. But Jude wants you to be good theologians. He wants you to what? It says in verse 3, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Everything else that Jude writes in this letter presupposes that it is every Christian's duty to know the truth, to care about the truth, to protect it by making certain that we teach the objective truth of God's word. <clears throat> he, he does not want us to teach error. He doesn't want us to study error. Uh, I, this was years ago. Um, let me think. I have a dollar bill here. here. I have a $10 bill in my pocket fortunate day. We can see that in our $10 bill today, there is color on it. How many of you remember the good old days when it was just green and white, okay? And, and if you hold it up to the light, isn't there a bar or something? That, yeah, here it is. There's this bar that goes through it, okay? And I don't know what that bar does, but in the old days, uh, you know, it was just fancy paper with ink and it was very particular in how they printed it but today it's got colors and layers and all kinds of things and 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 I had had the the uh, the fortune to speak to a treasury agent this was years ago when money was simple and I said how do you learn you know to, to spot counterfeit money 
He says, well, I never look at counterfeit money. I just study the real thing. And so when I see it, it is obvious that it's counterfeit. Ah, So our job is to study the real thing. Our job is to so know the real word of God that when we come up against what is error and what is false, it will be obvious to us. Somebody will say something to you. Do you know God helps those who help themselves? And you say, well, yeah, that's in the scripture. And you go, no, it's not. Of course it's not. Okay. Well, well yeah, I've, I've learned that all my life. It's got to be in scripture somewhere. No, because you study the real word of God, you know what's false. And that's what Jude is trying to help us understand here. Study the real thing and you will know what is false. Now, apostasy has plagued the church since its very beginning. Every cult, everything that has an ism on the end of it that comes along in the name of Christianity deviates from God's word. That is a form of apostasy. Mysticism, any denial of the singular authority of the word of God or the scriptures leads the church towards apostasy. Every other teaching outside of Christianity that, that, that is like this seems to have an additional um, person or document that they refer to as an authority, right? In the Mormon uh, faith, they have uh, Scripture plus the Book of Mormon. Uh, in, uh, I don't, I've forgotten what it's called, but it's Scripture plus the writings of Mary Baker Eddy. What is that? Science, okay, so, so it goes on and on like that. It's this plus, it's Scripture plus this, because apparently in their minds, Scripture is not enough. There seems to be some new knowledge that we have to have, some new ideas, some new revelation that really make the things clear. I mean, Scripture apparently is only a half step. To get the real truth, you've got to get the whole step, so that takes Randy's writings, Okay. Do you think Randy's ramblings would be Scripture? Yeah, forget that, okay? No, Scripture alone. And then you go, well, Randy. Okay, even in the Reformed Church, we have things like, what did we say today? The Apostles' Creed. And sometimes we'll say the Nicene Creed. And if you're Reformed, then you say, gee, I remember when we, uh, the elders here, we, we, we took our vows as elders. There's that thing called the Westminster Confession. Don't we rely upon that? Well, understand, all of those things are subservient to this. They are subservient to this. They do not replace it. They do not trump it. In fact, they do not trump it. In fact, if you look at the Westminster Confession, um, what it does is it takes, as an example, the teachings in Scripture and all the references about the sovereignty of God, and it puts it in one or two or three paragraphs entitled, Of the Sovereignty of God. And then it footnotes all the passages that it references. So it brings together all of these teachings so that we might understand the sovereignty of God, but it relies only upon Scripture for its proof. We are convinced that men will err. We are convinced that God will not err. So the Westminster Divines were good theologians. They weren't inspired like the writers of Scripture were, okay? So you and I, we will mess up. God will not. That's the easy part, right? All right, Jude says that he was compelled to write something different than his heart set out to write. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity. The root of the word necessity is to compress. 
So Jude felt a Holy Spirit-inspired pressure to change the topic of what he was going to write about, and he instead charges the believer to contend earnestly. Now, this, this Greek verb here is, is something that we all know, so that's why I'm, I'm going to bring it up. It's called epagonizo, epagonizo. So the root is agonizo, which we get the word agonize from, and when you put a preposition in front of it, it only strengthens it. So not only are we to agonize for the faith that has been given to us, we are to really agonize for the faith, so to speak. Jude says, I'm calling you to an extreme form of agony. And what even makes it more interesting in the Greek language is called a present infinitive, which means Jude calls us now to an extreme form of agony which has no ending except in our death. So he says, this is a lifelong process. You are called to it now. This is the faith that has been delivered to you right now. Contend earnestly for it. For how long? For the rest of your lives. You think, isn't there any easy thing in the Christian faith? Well, there are great blessings, and there are great things that the Lord will give us to, to us. And we were wrestling with this in Sunday school about forgiveness and, and the things that the Lord promises to us. And, and sometimes, you know, we see, oh, what's he promise us? He promises salvation. Great. He promises us his grace. He will always be with us. And the other things, there's some other things that he promises us, like suffering, like people will hate you for the cause of Christ. Is that really what we want to sign up for? Oh, I can't wait to suffer for Christ. That's what we do sign up for because that's what we are called to. So this battle of faith is an ongoing and continuous battle which will go on all our lives, and we are called to it. Now, the faith refers to that divinely inspired doctrine that is given to us by God from the teachings of Christ and elaborate on in the teachings of the apostles. He wants us to cling to that faith, to contend for that faith. He wants us to understand that this doctrine is not changeable. We are not to be blown about by every wind and wave. We are to hold solidly to the faith that it was once given, once for all given. Not once given and then to be given a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. But this truth, this faith, is once and for all time given. It's been laid out for us in the gospel, and we are to contend for it the rest of our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Hold firmly to the things which you, I have handed down to you. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, Timothy, Retain the pattern of these sound words which I have entrusted to you, which you heard from me. He goes on to call those words a treasure that he is to guard. Jude says, Beloved, care for the truth. Be ready to defend it, to be ready for, to contend for the truth. Now, this truth, as you can see, is given to us. It is not a truth that we had to go out and discover. It was not a truth that we had to climb the mountain and receive in some mystical vision. Now, now the, uh, the Desert Fathers... Um, this is in, in the early part uh, of the church, the first uh, several hundred years. They would go, they, they, they thought that 
to really understand God, they had to go out into the desert, into the wilderness, and be alone with God. And some of these people took very extreme measures. Uh, they would go out and live in caves, and, and um, sometimes they would wall themselves up except for a little space, and every two weeks somebody would come out with some more bread and water and give it to them, and they would live in these caves until they saw visions from the Lord. Now, I, I don't know how long it would take for you to live in a cave and eat bread and water before you saw visions. Uh, I think my tolerance would be pretty, pretty quickly I would begin to hallucinate. Okay? Well, what we have is these these desert fathers going out and trying to mystically understand God. And then people would flock to them out into the desert as well. So what we have is this doctrine which is delivered to us. It is given to us. We did not have to discover it. And there are no new doctrines. There are no new bits of revelation. So all those who claim to see things and to hear these new voices of revelation, they're They are in error, okay? Now, this does not rule out, there's a distinction between hearing the voice of God in new revelation and being prompted by God to act in some fashion. There's a distinction there. There's no new revelation coming to us. If there's a truth, it's here. If there's truth about God, it's already given to us. Now, what is the prompting of God? Gee, does God want me to go to the DR? And for the week and be in that short-term mission. Well, look for confirmation. There are plenty of things in Scripture that says that's a good thing. Look for confirmation from others about who are full of faith, who can help you discern the will of God for your life. That is not new revelation. That is simply God working in your life. And remember, there's, this is for the faith once delivered to the saints. It's a singular faith. There are not more than one faith, not more than one path to God. Only what he has given to us, it is the singular faith. Now, Jude speaks of this common salvation and of this faith that we obey his exhortation to make every effort to understand it, that this common salvation that we have and, and everything that is involved in that. So in order to understand this common salvation or in order to contend earnestly for the faith which is given to us, we have to know what that faith is. So he is saying you've got to know your Bible. You've got to know your Bible. Now, that is not that common in today's world. Studies for the past 20 or 30 years, studies, and this is the church across the board, have shown a, a pretty poor uh, lack of biblical understanding with people in the pews. Okay, now, how does that happen? Well, uh, it starts up here, okay, with a lack of understanding of the Bible up here. Uh, I read a, uh, a letter, testimony, whatever, from a Reformed seminary president who said 20 years ago, 30% of the incoming students failed the Bible content exam. Now, when you go to seminary, like uh, I guess any other discipline, you've got to take exams to see if you know what you're talking about. Well, the Bible content exam is a pretty standard examination if you're going to be a minister, okay? Because that's the book you're supposed to use, and every incoming freshman in the seminary takes this exam. It's 100 questions, it's multiple choice, um, That was 20 years ago, 30% were failing. He was interviewed again 20 years later. He said 60% are failing now. 60%? 
Now, when I took my Bible content exam, and I only took it once, I have, to, I have to repent of my pride now. Okay, I only took it once. <laughs> I didn't, didn't get the highest grade. The, the Old Testament, the minor prophets just about did me in, okay? I really didn't know anything about the minor prophets. But when I took it, I'm sitting next to a guy who was taking it for his fifth time, trying to pass the Bible content exam. And I thought, maybe you ought to go do something else. You know, you know to go home, take Bible trivia, you know, read it, you, you, that's basically what it is. Uh, well, we have to have a willingness to contend for the truth, and that is not all that common in the church today. Okay, Not only is there often a lack of knowledge of what the truth is, but there's a lack of willingness to really dig into what we call the doctrines of the church and, and you, you, we might hear things like, or things, these may have come out of your mouth, I, I don't know. Remember I said theology was for those who had lost their faith. Remember I said that once, years and years ago. I repented of that error, okay? But you might hear, well, let's not get caught up in all this doctrine, Rand. Let's just share what we know to be true, okay? Let's just share Christ. Let's not get lost in the minutia of all these things. Christianity isn't about doctrine. It's about a relationship. Right? So Jude comes along and he says, well, you have to be serious about what you believe. You have to be serious about what you know and understand. If you're going to have this relationship with Christ, you've got to understand the foundation upon which that relationship stays and rests. So we better pay attention to what he has to say. Now, yes, sometimes it is necessary to stress that Christianity is a relationship because nobody is saved by simply holding to a set of standards or a set of doctrines. Remember, our salvation rests in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't rest on checking the right boxes and having the right answer. And I passed my Bible content exam, so that means I can get into heaven. It's not that. You get into heaven by Christ, the person of Christ. But we need to stress that there is a set of essential truths in Christianity. And if you do not believe those essential truths of Christianity, you are in error and you do not believe the things of Christ. There are truths about God and of Christ and of humanity and of the church and of the world which are essential. And if we lose those, if we don't know them, if we distort them, if we hold the wrong ones as essential in our faith then the church is in big trouble, and we will fall. We will fall into error. When doctrine goes bad, the heart goes bad. And Jude is pointing out to us not all the list of heresies. He's pointing out the list of the lives of the apostates. That's what he is dealing with, and we'll see that as we go on in Jude. So often within our church today, it's hard for people to understand and grasp this contending for the faith because so much of our society does not really want to hold to things that are absolute and absolute truths and that there is an absolute truth concerning the things of God. And often this doesn't even sell very well when we want to be tolerant and we want to be uh, relative and we, we live in a very multicultural time and you've got to take into account all of these other things there is a truth. And that's what we have to cling to. But then there are also 
the times when, when we'll run up against people and go, well, Randy, I believe that, but does, does it really matter? Okay? As long as those people are sincere, as long as they hold beliefs that they think are true, won't God honor those? Don't get so caught up in the minutia of doctrine. Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that I am sincere about what I believe, then God will save me. Now, he doesn't say that. He says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, now, so what he is saying is that you have to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. And he is the Lord. He is the son of the living God. And he is the ruler of the universe and sits at the right hand of the Father. And I have to believe that in order to be saved. If I do not believe those things, if I do not embrace that truth, then I cannot participate in the salvation that he brings. If Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, if you do not confess him as such, if you do not believe those things... You cannot participate in the salvation that he brings. It's that simple. And it is that exclusive. And that doesn't always sell very well in our society. Now, it wasn't always this way. There have been times throughout history, in the history of the church, men and women willingly gave up their lives for the truth. And I'm just going to touch on one era, one little stretch of three years, 1555 to 1558. In England, 288 Protestant reformers were burned at the stake during that three-year period. It was a very tumultuous period in the time of the church. Um, Now, why were they burned at the stake? Because they stood by the truth. The truth that the real presence of the body of Christ is not in the elements, but is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You think, well... You know, we go to the Roman Catholic Church, they have a different view of of the Lord's Supper than the view that we have. Are we going to burn anybody on the stake over that? Well, not today, but in 1555, 56, 57, and 58, 288 reform leaders in England were burned at the stake because they would not change their view or would not say that there was any other correct view except that view of the Lord's presence in the communion that the real presence of christ is there at the right hand of the father that he comes through the power of the spirit to be here now throughout church history a lot of people have been burned at the stake and if you really want to get somebody we'll find somebody and do them in the backyard okay i don't think it sells well in society today but you have to understand that there was a time when people were willing to give their lives they knew if they held this view and if they knew that became public they would have to give their lives for that and they willingly did it there's one it was hugh latimer is sitting in his cell waiting to be burned the next morning and the only light in his cell is a candle and he's holding his hand over the candle and somebody looks in the door and says you know uh, reverend latimer what are you doing he says i'm attempting to get used to the flame so that when they light the fire i do not disgrace my lord 
willing to contend earnestly for the faith that has once been given for us. Jude says he's writing, he wanted to begin to write about our common salvation. When faith is at stake, our salvation is at stake. If truth is lost, then salvation will be lost. The apostles, the reformers, they were willing to die for the sake of the faith because they cared about whether people had it right or not. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Now, we studied this some time ago, but you'll see it here. Paul is very concerned about the churches that he has planted, that they hold tightly to the things that he has taught them, because he knows that when he leaves, others will come along, sometimes even from within the church that he has planted. Remember, we began to talk about apostasy, and so often apostasy rises up from within the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul says, you understand, when I leave, there will arise people, and he says, savage wolves. So he really illustrates the degree to which they will come in and savage the flock. They will come in with these wrong teachings. They may even arise from within the church that I have planted, people that have sat there and listened and said, yeah, yeah, but as soon as Paul's gone, I'm going to teach the truth. And Paul says, for three years, night and day, and night and day, and night and day, I have taught you, I've encouraged you, I've helped you understand the things of Christ. And Paul, it's not like Paul was his taskmaster that said, you've got to know this, and I'm going to drill it into your head. How does he teach it? With tears. With tears. There was such a love for the church and such a love for this group of people. He wanted them to be safe and he wanted them to be secure and he wanted them to grow in the things of Christ after he was gone. And he knew that these people were coming and he said, it is with tears that I have taught you these things so that you might be ready. You might be able to stand against the air that is going to creep into the church. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor theologian in England, when asked about his life, what has his life been like, he quotes one of his favorite Puritans and says, my life's work, but now in blood and battles was my youth in, and full of blood and battles in my age, and I shall never end this life of blood and battles. He was contending for the faith that was once given to the saints and that was his life. If we are true to the word of God and true to the gospel that he has entrusted to us, then it will be a, something we will have to contend for for our entire lives. That's why Paul warns them with tears day and night. Let's go back to Jude and we'll finish up. This that little portion, verse 4. He said, For certain persons have 
crept in unnoticed. Now, if you were Satan and you're on the other side of that door and you said, well, I got to get those people at Central. How can I do that? Would you just fling the doors open and begin to uh, proclaim clearly things that were in error? No. You'd come in about 1029 and you'd slide into a pew somewhere and, and as things were going on, um, uh, you'd, you'd stand up and we'd sing the first hymn and if you were Satan, you'd stand next to the person and you'd tell them what? Man, these hymns are kind of boring. Can't we get something else? And you just put that little, little morsel right in their ear. Or you might think what? You're standing in a person on the other side. And you say, you know, that lady up there has got perfume on. It just drives me crazy. Doesn't that drive you crazy? And then the next Sunday you'd go and you'd slip in someplace else. And you'd go, you know, Randy's not very good at the cello. Okay. And then the next Sunday, you'd come in over here. And, and, but you see, you would creep in. And before you know it, after six or seven weeks or months, everybody's going, oh, man, I don't like this hymn. Why are we singing this hymn? I wish Randy quit playing the cello. <coughs> Too much perfume. Right? And everybody would be going, rawr, 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 rawr. that's what happens. It creeps in unnoticed. And before you know it, if you're not clinging to the truth, if you're not digging into the Word yourselves as individuals, then you're beginning to doubt and you're taken away into the things of error. Matthew says in chapter 7, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Okay? Somebody would come in, Satan would come in through that door looking just like us. Okay? Just like us. 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the silver tongue. This is kind of the, the, the paraphrase, the silver tongue super apostles who come in and sound so good, but they teach error. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test every spirit. Test every spirit to see whether or not they are from God. For many prophets, false prophets, have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess that is not from God. See, sometimes we'll have to comfort those who deny specific doctrines, like Peter and John did when they comforted those who denied the second coming and tried to bring them back around and taught them those things. In other instances, we have to really challenge one another to live out the things of the faith every single day like James did in word and deed these are the things that we're called to do sometimes we'll have to resist the creeping influence of false doctrine as it comes in and and deny those who teach it like in second john we read that don't let them into your house don't shake their hands don't say how nice they were tell them what it is you really don't believe the truth you don't hold to the things of Christ. Let me help you see why you are an heir. As we contend for the faith, we have to always love those who disagree with us, but we have to help them understand the truth. There are negotiable matters in Scripture. Things like, oh, I don't know, 
I'm suddenly blank on a negotiable issue. Jewelry, length of hair, uh, style of music, all those things, those are negotiable. We're, let's offer one another grace. There are essentials that we're going to stand on. The model of the EPC comes from Augustine. In essentials, unity. Non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. When it comes to the essentials, we're going to fight over those because those are essential. Non-essentials, we're going to grant grace as I hope I will be granted grace. And in all things, we're going to encourage and treat people with the respect of Christ. But when it comes to doctrine, we've got to know it, we've got to stand on it, we've got to live it. Let's pray. Lord, in your mercy, you have called us to this great faith. And you have given us the truth of your gospel, and you call us to hold to it, to understand it, to consume it, to digest it, that it comes from every conversation that we have. It pours out. It it pours out in every action that we have, in our attitudes, in our mindset, in the way that we look at the world. You tell us to know the truth, because there is one objective truth about the things of Christ and about you. Heavenly Father, you have given it to us that we might understand as far as our human minds are possible through the enlightening of the Holy Spirit who you are and what you call us to do. Lord, might we see these things each and every day and stand on the truth of your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.